You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. The scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for a good. Thanks, Rafa. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this glorious morning already. It is obvious to us that your son, Jesus, is alive and reigning in heaven and commanding your spirit to work in our world, to bring salvation to us needy sinners. As we turn our attention now to the scriptures, I ask that you would give to our minds the ability to focus and give to uh, me the ability to speak clearly and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you that we might see and know the resurrected Jesus better. Amen. Amen. I'm going to do my best to make some brief uh, remarks about this passage and to reflect on uh, why we gathered here for Easter. Um, it's been a busy morning already, and there's a lot more baptisms that are coming in the next couple of weeks, so we do hope you continue to join us. It's an exciting time in the life of our church. Um, when I say the words genitive, generative pre-trained transformer, I wonder if anyone has any uh, ideas that come into their mind. Up till a couple of months ago, I wouldn't have known Uh, much of what these words meant, but I learned about a program from OpenAI called ChatGPT, Generative Pre-Trained Transformer, and I learned a lot about sort of the ways in which AI is transforming the way in which we think about our future, the way in which we think about especially 
uh, white-collar jobs. You know, I learned all about the general nervousness people have about ChatGPT, this computer program, uh, this brain that can sort of write and decipher uh, data and, and communicate to individuals. I learned of the great fear that the academic world has because this ChatGPT can write essays on behalf of students. I also learned of the incredible opportunities that lay before the world thanks to something like ChatGPT. And though this might mean a handful of jobs lost, it did seem is that our world is something different now that the masses can use this thing called ChatGPT. Uh, I promise you this sermon isn't a result of ChatGPT. I did try it. It wasn't that great, so I think I got some job security for a while. I'm sure it's going to get better, though. But what's interesting to me is this past couple of weeks, there's been a handful of articles that have expressed um, some hesitation about the advancement with which ChatGPT is pushing our world forward. And I don't know if you saw it. Um, Vice News had an article about an individual who, through corresponding with ChatGPT and communicating with ChatGPT, eventually made the unfortunate decision, uh, the horrendous decision, of taking uh, his own life. The New York Times had a more lighthearted uh, interaction, but a journalist uh, tried his best to see if ChatGPT could fall in love with him. And quite to his surprise, actually, ChatGPT did fall in love with him and actually continued to correspond back and forth. And obviously, the, the people who are writing this code quickly go in when they see these mistakes and they find ways to correct them. Um, but it does seem as though this technology has brought to us a new world. And, and last week, or a couple weeks ago, some thousand of sort of the big names in AI, from Elon Musk to Steve Wozniak and many others, uh, put together a document where they have requested to the AI community that there be a six-month pause on advancing this, this sort of technology, that it's actually moving so fast and it's so dangerous. They realize they're not going to stop it, but is there any way we can stop it for six months and come together and think through the ethics that are at stake if we have computers able to form sort of unique ideas and not just synthesize data, but repackage the data and communicate as though they are human? And some big-name uh, people and government officials even have agreed with this request for a six-month stopping point. But what became obvious to me is that there will always be some who are thrilled about technology like ChatGPT, and it's not going anywhere anytime soon. And it will transform what it means to be an ordinary desk worker, I'm, I'm presuming. It will transform how we work. Now, if you can understand in our world, I'm trying to be brief, but if you can understand in our world some of the anxiety around ChatGPT, if you don't, you know, if, that this is potentially going to take jobs. It's going to change how we think, okay? It's going to mess with our short-term memory patterns. Uh, it's going to transform what we think is of as valuable work. If you can understand the anxiety people have around the way in which this technology is changing what it means to be human, and you can understand uh, the reality, though, that there's no turning it back, that it's here to stay, that it's, it's out in the public and it's, it's as good as happening now and it will only continue to get more and more uh, advanced. You can understand something of what happens in the resurrection in this passage that we have read. Uh, the revolution around ChatGPT is a minor paradigm shift, a minor shift in thinking compared to what we're reading about when in the middle of history God saw fit to raise one man, Jesus of Nazareth, from the dead. I just want to point your attention to two things, and I have to be extremely, extremely brief this morning, but I want to reflect on what arrived on Easter morning, and then I want to reflect on what must advance because of Easter. So first, what arrived on Easter morning? What do we see uh, that arrived here? Now, I presume it's Easter Sunday. Sunday. A lot of you have nice-looking clothes on. I'm, I'm presuming some of you know something about the Easter story, and you know that on Easter Sunday we celebrate that Jesus of Nazareth was, was dead. He was buried in a grave. And he rose from the dead. 
Uh, but this passage actually tells us that there's something uh, beyond that. As incredible as it is that Jesus was dead and is no longer dead, there's something that, that that event actually has meaning attached to it. The passage we're looking at is written from a man named the Apostle Paul, the most unlikely of figures to write it. He was a, a, a zealous Jewish man who spent his life persecuting Christianity, spent his life trying to undercut uh, the message of Jesus Christ. And as we read in verse 7, he has this miraculous and this powerful encounter with the resurrected Jesus, and his whole life is upended. And his whole life becomes dedicated to seeing this, this news of Jesus' resurrection spread around the Roman Empire. And in verses 3 to 4, we have some of the earliest teaching in the New Testament on the resurrection. A lot of historians uh, estimate that what we're reading here was written maybe some 20 years, maybe, maybe A.D. 50, some 20 years after Jesus rose from the dead. And it references the fact that Paul has already preached this message in the city of Corinth. But what has arrived on Easter morning is not simply that one man is no longer dead, but there's, there's meaning attached to what is going on. And this is what Paul says. He wants them to stand firm in this message he has given to them. In verse 2, he says this. And the message isn't just purely that Christ rose from the dead, but that he was buried, and he, and, or sorry, that he died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised. Now, what's going on? Uh, I had a non-Christian neighbor tell me that they visited a church once, and it felt like a book club that was kind of stuck on one book. It was a pretty pretty accurate description. If you're not a Christian, you're thinking about what happens at church. But what is Paul trying to say? Well, Paul is saying this, okay? I I want you to understand this paradigm. You've got to understand Paul's background. Uh, Paul assumed that human life, we might say human consciousness, he wouldn't use that language, but that human life, uh, the breath that we breathe, that, that these things can't be generated purely out of nothing by other human beings. That there has to be some life giver outside of us, someone who pushes the, the, the air into our lungs, someone who activates our soul, activates our consciousness, maybe to use language we would be familiar with. Uh, that these things can't be created in a lab. Sure, we can mix the parts up and in a Petri dish do our best to create life, but we can't create consciousness This happens through this miraculous experience that happens uh, when life comes in. And Paul thought that all of life has to find its origin in God, the creator of the heavens and earth. But not just life itself, not just consciousness and breath. But Paul also believed that in God was all goodness and beauty and order and justice. He was the source of good things. And apart from him, there was no way to experience life, especially the good life. But Paul also firmly believed, like all the Jewish people, that for whatever reason, God's people bestowed with such great dignity and such, uh, such wonderful uh, sort of uh, autonomy, chose to rebel against the very God who made them and who gave them life. And part of what happened in our rebellion against our Creator is we became a human race that is deceived and we're enslaved and, and addicted to being apart from our creator. We're addicted to creating life our own way, to understanding and having life in and of ourselves. The Bible calls this sin. And Paul firmly believed that we were all trapped in sin. The Bible says that the first human beings, God created them out of dust and breathed life into them. And what ends up happening at sin is that very life that is breathed into us is used in ways to reject our creator. And our whole lives are just a pattern where sin is transforming us from these dignified image bearers back into pictures of dust. And this rebellion unleashed, this problem of sin not only released death in your and my life and all of the people that you interact with's life, it introduced death into our entire cosmos. I don't know a thing about the second law of thermodynamics, but ChatGBT told me it has some bearing to this, you know? Uh, the, the stars are burning out. 
Things are, things are moving and heading uh, towards decay. Whatever happened with the, when these first creatures rebelled against their creator, this pattern of death took off. Not just in our life, not just in the plant life, not just in the animal life, but in the entire cosmos. It gets sort of written into the source code. Now, so that the one who gave life said, if you choose to reject this, if you choose to walk away from this, decay is what is to be expected. And yet the whole entire Old Testament is constantly telling the story of the creator's deep love for his creation, that he won't give up, that he's going to continue to pursue, and he's, he's going to make things right. He's going to do all he can as the one who gave life to ensure that life and good life is preserved and moves forward in this world. This is what he wants. He wanted his whole world to be covered with image bearers, thriving, creating culture, making beautiful things for his glory and for the good of their fellow human beings. And the Old Testament is a story of God not giving up. And what Paul is saying is that in the resurrection of Jesus, God has made good on that promise woven throughout the entire Old Testament. In a world that is in utter addiction to death, God has broken into this world in his son Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, on the cross, he paid the debts of sin. He, he, he died and he was buried. And God saw this and resurrected Jesus. And as surely as... Sin's toxic power was woven into the very source code of all of reality, into our very DNA and into the DNA, into the way in which all the world and stars work. So also Paul believes that what happened at the resurrection is in a sense new source code, an antidote to death, an undoing of death being woven back into creation so that, the t that things begin to, to work backwards and be undone, that life unending can finally be tasted and experienced. And Paul says, though, though the Old Testament never explicitly said these things, Paul says this was done just as we should have seen coming, you know. For our God is the God who allowed Joseph to be buried in a pit, as good as dead, and then lifted up and seated at the right hand of the highest power of our day. Our God was a God who led a nation through an infant named Moses, who was put on a, a small flotation device and passed along a river as good as dead and rescued and brought into the house of Pharaoh, seated at the right hand of power. For our God is a God who took a people in slavery, the people of Israel, bondage to Egypt, and he delivers them and he backs them into a corner so they're as good as dead. And then he parts the seas so that they again can experience new life. This is our God. Our God is the God who caused his prophet, who was in utter rebellion, uh, to, to be thrown overboard on a ship in the, in the belly of a large fish, sort of descending to the depths of the earth, all to be vomited again on the third day. Our God is a God who has constantly given hints that life would come again to this world, that there would be something like resurrection. The prophets told of valleys of bones, the bones coming back together again and life coming into God's people. The prophet Hosea spoke of a time when God would revive his people and on the third day raise them up again. And what Paul is saying is that God has made good on his promise in the resurrection of Jesus. So what has arrived at Easter? Christianity is not just some sort of uh, philosophical uh, mindset, some sort of affirmation filled with positive thinking. It's not some sort of new philosophy that breaks into the world. Christianity is real history. And it's the claim that in Jesus Christ, God is undoing the power of death which torments each and every one of you daily throughout the course of your life, which torments all of our universe. In Jesus Christ, God has started the first fruits. The very first seedling is poked through, and this world of death will not win in the end. It will be undone. I don't know who remembers, if anyone else uh, watched the show Chernobyl. 
on HBO about the, the meltdown. But I'll never forget the scene, and I, I think it's true to history, but I don't know. ChatGPT said it was, so I don't know. Um, <laughs> that was a joke. Um, I'll never forget the scene, though, where the... Uh, good, good, Amanda. I'll never forget the scene where um, the, the, there, there's absolute meltdown in one of the reactors. And there's some valve underneath the reactor, the burning reactor, that is pinched closed or something. There's some sort of valve that needs to be opened up if, if this, uh, this um, sort of blowing up uh, re reactor can be stopped. And I'll never forget the scene when, in which they bring the employees together and they say, this valve is not opening up, someone needs to go down there. And the employees say, you're saying someone's going to need to swim in radioactive water underneath a reactor going through a meltdown to find this valve and then hopefully open the valve so that no more meltdowns take place. And I'll never forget the scene where the three men agree to do this, knowing that full and well it's a suicide mission. And much to everyone's surprise, you may remember, everyone is in anxiety wondering whether they will actually find the valve, whether or not they'll die underneath the reactor. No one knows exactly what the situation's like there. You'll never, I'll never forget the scene when you're assuming they're dead. They do get the valve open, but then you hear from the outside sort of a banging on the door. Not only did they survive opening up the valve, not only was it a successful mission, but they were able actually to get back out from under the reactor. They come out of the doors sort of with their arms up. In a sense, this is what we're seeing in the resurrection. Someone has come to shut down the power of death, to take it head on. And in the, in, as Jesus raises from the grave, as he comes, raises from the dead, as his hands are extended in the air, we know the power of death is undone. The valve has been open. This, this meltdown can't continue forever. The beginning of the end has taken place. Listen, this is good news. It means that in a world where we know that sin's infection is everywhere to be seen, and in a world and in a life where you and I both know we walk, wake up regularly with longings, deep longings, wondering when death will leave us alone, when we feel like sin and shame have the final say in our life, the resurrection of Jesus is, is a victorious event in which he comes out from the grave in a sense with his arms up in the air, saying, it is over. Shame will not have the last word. Sin and shame have to give way to forgiveness. Grief has to give way to joy. Christ has risen. He's risen from the grave. The power of death has been undone. What this means is that a day's coming when those thoughts that you just seem to be unable to get out of your head, those thoughts that torment you, are those addictive sins you find yourself battling with over and over again? And in those days where you feel like they're absolutely handling, handing it to you? Are those days where you feel like mental illness is just so frustrating and unfair to you? Are where disease limits your ability to think about the future and think, uh, participate in the future? And those days where you feel like shame and sin so weigh you down you can't show your face to your spouse, to your friends, to your church? The resurrection of Jesus is telling us that a day is coming where we will experience a world with none of this. And that future is certain because Christ rose from the dead. Sin's power is done with. It might, it might have its way in a couple of chapters in your life, but it's over. It will not win. Death will not win. That's what Easter is all about. And that's what it means to be people in a post-Easter world. We suffer. We suffer just like anyone else. We experience the pains of death, yes, but we do it knowing full and well this isn't our last chapter. 
Life has come into our world in Jesus Christ. And when we're linked up with Christ, when we're bonded with Christ, as surely as he has defeated death, so also we know the powers of sin and death don't have the last say in our lives. And this comes, before, this comes for us to be wonderful news. Christ is our life. That's what Easter is all about. This is what arrived on Easter morning. I'm going to be incredibly brief. Let's talk about what must advance. And all I want to point your attention to is almost immediately the passage hints. That this resurrection victory that Jesus won from the grave, this victory over sin and shame and the power of death and decay and destruction, this certain victory, not only did it arrive in the resurrection of Jesus, but it must advance. And that's why Paul has all these references to Jesus appearing first to Cephas, to Peter, then to the twelve, then to 500 eyewitnesses, then to him. Why does he share all that? Well, in part to say that this was a real event in history, to say that this is true history. Jesus rose from the dead, and people saw it, and people verified it. But Paul also wants us to know that this victory that Jesus won, this power over death, is now, it not only comes to us, it not only comes inside of us, but it will again be extended out through us. And this is the way our God is always working. And so whether this week you find yourself changing diapers, or washing dishes, or arguing for justice in the courtroom, or building bridges, or sending emails. You labor as those who say, Christ is my life. And in Christ, the powers of death have begun to be defeated, and they will ultimately lose. And our Lord sends us out into this world as people who know that the last chapter will be one in which sin is undone, the power of death is undone, victory is in Christ, which, invo- which, which in so many ways makes us into a completely uh, different group of people than any of the people in the world around us. There's much more that could be said, but I assure you we'll continue to talk about the resurrection in the days to come. In Jesus Christ, life unending has come into our world. The power of sin is being undone and unraveled. The antidote is here. The prescription is available and so all that stands in the way of this is, is, is you putting up your hands and resisting the life that Christ offers you. Wait no more. Christ is our life, and in the resurrection of Jesus, life unending comes to you. Taste this life today. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ there is life and life abundant. We ask now, Father, for anyone here who's never heard this message, that they would, that you would open their eyes of their hearts and their minds, that they would see your Son, Jesus Christ, and in faith move towards him, know his love, and be received and embraced by him. Make us a people of the resurrection in a world of decay. And come soon, Lord Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at christchurchtoronto.ca or email us at info at christchurchtoronto.ca.